What's up, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined, as I always am, of course, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And for today, for episode 170, we are starting at last, the final published book in the Rune Lords to date, with David Farland's Chaos Bound. And we're covering everything up to and through chapter 14 for this episode, so let's just get started right away. Drew, what's happened so far? Please? Uh, yeah. Actually, let me pull up my summary here. Yeah. Uh, with Book 8 of the Rune Lords, Chaos Bound, David Farland makes an abrupt shift, leaving behind the main characters of the previous three books to revisit some heroes from the first four, Mirama and her husband Borenson. Across the sea in Landis Fallen, they have continued to live their lives in peaceful retirement. But that retirement is brutally interrupted with three things. The discovery of the Walken family squatting on their property, the binding of the worlds by Falion, and the death of their youngest child, Aaron. In the aftermath of the Cataclysm, Borenson finds himself merged with the prime berserker, Oth Ulber, and he kills the Baron Walken when Walken tries to kill Murama over some loot. Walken's daughter, Rain, chooses to stay with the Borensons out of love for their son, Draken. While the family gears up for a voyage back across the sea, Oth Ulber visits the Tree of the Earth King, where Gaborn is somehow still alive and commands him to prepare for war. After giving the warning, the tree dies, and with it goes Gaborn. Meanwhile, the Lich Lord Kroll Maldor deals with the binding of the worlds over an internook, fending off armies of the warlords and building her own wormling horde with endowments. A prophecy arises, however, of a foretold champion who will kill the Emperor Zul'Tarak, and she is ordered to find and kill this hero. While she plots against the Emperor, however, Lord Despair himself contacts her. She is to give every single wormling in her horde a hundred endowments of metabolism, so that they may conquer and populate thousands of worlds in the span of a year. And the Borensons are sailing west, heading for a war that will span the stars. So, okay. I'm sorry to have missed that because this one really did leave me reeling. Um, a lot of the choices left me a little confused. Um, there is still a lot to enjoy for a reader like I, but I have a feeling that you and I are really going to be um, vibing on how much we are not vibing with this, <sighs> this first half of the book. So let's talk about some of these choices here. Of course, yeah. first and foremost, the decision to leave behind his main characters, you know, shifting geographically and chronologically to focus on characters who've been removed from central events. How are we feeling? For, for like the last six years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, not a big fan. Uh, I mean, like, I like Mirama and Borenson. I've always liked them as characters. They were probably my favorite characters from the first four. But like... You know, that, that story was over. Uh, I, I've i spent three books learning about and caring about Falion and Rihanna. And so, like, leaving off at the end of Wormling Horde and then just abandoning them, at least through the first, you know, 55-ish percent of this book. Not a huge fan of that arthurial choice. Um, I agree. Yeah. And it's like, it's not like there aren't interesting things happening here. There are still scenes that I'm like, yes, you know, this is, this is the Rune Lords. This is the, the Dave, David Farland, the Dave Wolverton that I love. You know, this is the kind of stuff that I, that dragged me into the Rune Lords back with the sum of all men. 
but it just feels like it's those moments are few and far between because not only has he kind of abandoned the main characters from the last three books, but this is like an entirely new plot line in a lot of ways. Like even, even the things that are familiar from the last two books, since the the worlds were bound together, even those things that are familiar are often described with new terms. Like, in Worldbinder and the Wormling Horde, we never get the word lich. Ah, uh, death lord. not ever, right? Yeah, they're they're death lords, and then now suddenly we never get them described as death lords, and it's liches. They're all liches, and it's like so they are the it, same thing. So it's I'd... really jarring. Mm. Well, we're given to understand that because Zul Tarak is described as a lich. Oh, whereas in the previous books he was described as a death lord. Mm. You know, and and. But Perhaps because of that, for themselves. it's confusing know. at first because you, you meet Kroll Maldor in whatever chapter two and you're like, wait, what is going on? Like a, a, a lich who can like inhabit the bodies of animals and like this is totally new out of nowhere and this is like a, a main character now. Like, oh, and, yeah. then, and then as you go on, you're like, okay, no, this is a death lord. But why is it called a lich, not a death lord? And there's a lot of stuff like that where it, it just it's really, really jarring. Mm. And it, it almost feels like he's just sort of like making up, making it all up as he goes and has forgotten what he wrote before. And like, yeah, there, there were a lot of inconsistencies. Uh, there were, I mean, even, even timeline things that made no sense, geographic things that I was like, that's wrong. Like uh, early in the book, they're talking about uh, Castle Kurm, you know, the uh, the castle that the Borensons lived in back in Mystaria before everything went to went to hell in a handbasket. Mm-hmm. And and Borenson thinks about how it was like near the border, uh, the border, the Mystarian border with Longmont. It's like he, Longmont doesn't border Mystaria. That's a castle in Herodon, like halfway across the continent from Mystaria. I don't know how you still how you catch these. I would and never like, have got that. Wow, damn. And though. there are and there are timeline things like with Kroll Maldor. I, I think at the like near the beginning of of uh yeah near the beginning of chapter fourteen, she talks about how you know the Wormling Lord Yakarga is is you know with her now. Yeah, and it's been nineteen got. days since the worlds were bound together and then like uh like two you know two paragraphs three paragraphs later over the past three weeks Kroll Maldor had begun creating her own army of wormling rune lords 20,000 strong it's like first off the worlds weren't bound three weeks ago second off you didn't discover like what rune lords were until a couple of days after the worlds were bound like like the timelines just don't match up there and i'm gonna be paying attention to that now the first half of this book really is just like kind of a mess and it doesn't have that like strong emotional connection to drag me through it the way the rest of these other books have Hmm. uh you know like world binder where like yeah it's really jarring how three chapters in suddenly we have like a completely new world and all this crazy new stuff 
but we have Falion, who we've like just spent an entire book getting to know and love, and Rihanna, who we've just spent an entire book getting to know and care about and and root for, and and then and that, fear for, and, and you can discover the world through their lens, right? And and then here it's it's just way more jarring than that because it's you're getting yanked away from the people that you just cared about. You didn't get resolution. Uh, you know, some people may sorry, I'm really ranting here. Don't no, no, go uh, for it. Like, go I have opinions it. about this. Like some people complain about Sons of the Oak because they're like, you know, I you know, it's the middle of the series and suddenly we're following totally new characters. Like, yes, but it's that's the demarcation of a sub-series where yep. a complete story was told. We got conclusions, we got narrative satisfaction to the stories of Gaborn, Iome, Mirama, and Borns. Sons of the Oak was the best in the series for me. Still. And then at the end of Wormling Horde, we got none of that narrative satisfaction with Falion and Rihanna and and Tool Ra and and then suddenly we're just gonna abandon all of those stories and shift back to characters whose stories we thought were already finished. And now it's like making it sound like Borenson is the one who like the the universe hinges upon, not Falion, you know, mm. like and, you know, like, Borenson is is apparently going to be this prophesied hero with, like, that they're oh, saving yeah. thousands and thousands of forcibles for. And, like, he's going to he's gonna be the one who, like, saves Falion and brings him to the seals of creation. And, and uh, Although I, I have a theory about that, but we'll get Ooh, there later. Okay, okay, um, okay, okay. Interesting. You know, peaked. but there's... It, it's just such a dramatic shift, and it doesn't feel planned or satisfying it feels like he wrote the wormling horde and then was like struggling to figure out how to make all the pieces fit together and in the meantime was like well i gotta get a book out so i'm gonna write about these other characters Hmm. you know uh Hmm. this feels more like a a um song of ice and fire like feast for crows dance with dragons situation where like you're just leaving behind half of the characters to go deal with these other characters and not finish telling the story of of these characters over here. You know, it feels like that more than it feels like the shift from Lair of Bones to Sons of the Oak. Yeah. And now I'll let you talk. <laughs> no, you're, you're good though. Cause I think I agree with everything you're saying and, and you're, you're See, starting off with the worlds colliding from Borenson's point of view, just, just starting that with that choice, the incoming flood, poor Aaron's broken neck. That was crazy. I went into this book. Like this is, wow, this is, these are not the characters we want, but at least it's not slow. And it hasn't been particularly slow, but it's it's not what I had wanted going into this book. And I, I, I had been ready for it. These zooming in, though, on how what part of the reason that, that this is not really landing for me is I can see these stylistic things that are just really not jiving for me. Like even zooming in closely here, I take the end of chapter six, for example. A lot of these chapters are ending in shockingly abrupt ways. And at the end of chapter six, this is where Borenson's uh, the Borensons, I should say, are told by the mayor. I want to say Fendel, Fengil, or whatever that that martial oh, yeah. law. Martial law is in effect, and Mirma is just like, oh, under whose authority was martial law declared? Um, and then my authority, Mayor Fengil said, a warning in his voice. And then, end. The chapter ends there, in the middle of a conversation. Like, sure, someone new has joined the conversation at that front and center here, but 
he's already been introduced sentences or, or paragraphs earlier. We just kind of ended this chapter with a vague, threatening tone in the middle of a conversation. And I was just left there like, what? And then it goes into seven in the audiobook. I'm, again, doing this on the audiobook. So I just hear Ray Porter say seven. And he goes into the next chapter and I'm left going, huh? I felt like there was going to be a follow-up on that. It just, I don't know. A lot of this book feels janky to me. I think janky is the word I'm looking for. Yeah, janky is a good word for it. It just it really it, is a good word feels, for it. It feels a little clumsy is not the word janky is the word it feels a little forced together in awkward ways i don't know mm-hmm. mm. i do like this whole mounting threat of yikarga though going for Oth ulber that sounds pretty cool yeah. that sounds like it's going to be a good 1v1 oh yeah for sure like right. you know we got a a chosen worm laying rune lord like yeah that's gonna, gonna be, be cool good, some good stuff but there's so much going on here that i just could not find a to give about and i'll be going into this with my character points later specifically about draken but um i'll give you another chance to throw a style point if you want yeah okay so um this book we're back to is, books sorry uh, go ahead. exactly we're back to books i figured that's where you're going with this yeah yeah uh-huh um it, it is not days like it was in the first four books uh but again we are back to intra book segments uh, intra-volume segments. We have book one, which is uh, The Flood, and book two, which we got just a couple chapters into, which is titled The Warlords of Internook. Uh, book one is nearly half of this book. And it is all setup. It is all exposition. And that's a problem for the penultimate book in a series. Like, because he made this choice to shift focus to introduce a brand new like mega villain multiple new mega villains uh <laughs> like he has to take half of this dang book just to like get us inside the heads and conflicts of a whole new cast of characters and it's like look dude these are not long books this book is 351 pages in hardcover this is probably i don't know 110,000 words ish somewhere in there a hundred thousand and and uh the last few books have been like 80 to ninety thousand words there's not a whole ton of space not a whole ton of page space here and the story's already been moving like super fast and that last book ended with like things really pointed at a, a pretty massive you know conflagration yep. and then we get half <laughs> yep. of this book just grinding to a screeching halt completely shifting the focus away and being like, oh no, we're just going to deal with all of this on the other side of the world now, or or up north uh, in an island, and we're going to like hear some vague rumors about what you've been reading in the last three books. But like, that's a really unsatisfying yeah. pacing choice in in terms of the whole series. This is the eighth of nine books in a series, and a half of it is like. It reads like the first book in a series. Yeah, I remember expressing a hope uh, coming out of last episode saying that maybe it'll catch us up. You know, maybe it'll be like another book that we've read. And we'll spend I was some really time hoping with, you were going to be right. Yeah, Mirama and Borenson and company. And then we'll catch up to our main characters and then we'll continue on from there. Um, oh, but and thinking about that afterwards as well, I was like, you know what? Something else occurred to me that gave me a little bit more hope in that direction while I was listening to this book. Um, it is a, a very, very short amount of time in world 
for a series like this that, that these have been happening like these past few books have been taking place over the course of two days right two mm-hmm. days a piece or something like that so i was like there's really not a whole lot of time chronologically separating borenson and Mirama, just geographically speaking so maybe there, there's a little more hope for that but then after coming out of course the first 14 chapters of this book i'm just like oh yeah no i guess not or not yet i would like to see them still catch up maybe but obviously it's not going to we don't have much page space to even if they do catch up and start to head towards a common goal this is it feels like this is just going to set up the last book it's where it's going to end of course it would have to but it just in this way i think the reason why this feels um so haphazard to me haphazard is also a good word for it if if he had planned this from the get-go, I don't understand why we didn't get points of view from Borenson and Merima back in Worldbinder of, like, this stuff happening. You know, he could have given them... I mean, clearly he had room to make a to write a bigger book than Worldbinder was, because that was, like, an 82,000-word book or whatever. He could have had a subplot in that about Borenson and Merima when the flood hits and what happens with the Walkins and have a... You know, um, combine the books into one. A, a climactic sequence cool. that ends with them getting the ship and leaving to come across the ocean. You know, that could have been like a a C plot in Worldbinder, where where Falion and Rihanna and Jazz is the A plot, and Alan and Warlord Maddock is the B plot. You know, and then you could have fair, had Born Cinemurma on the other side of the world, and then it's like okay, and then in the Wormling Horde. While all the crazy stuff is going down in the netherworld and, and trying to rescue Falion from Rugasa, you could have had just some reminders that, oh, they're coming across the ocean. And then this book could have started with them arriving. You know, like it, it could have the, the pacing of the disparate storylines could have been handled a lot better. And, and I if he did plan on having Borenson and Merma be important characters in this second series, I don't understand why he didn't do that. There is nothing wrong, ever wrong, with having more of the Rune Lords. I would just go as a general <laughs> yeah. rule of thumb there. If this um, needed to be an extra book long, or like, do like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I and like, then... Uh, I would like to see them come I, I will say, I was very hopeful. You know, like you said last episode, that like possibly... It would just start with them and then we'd get back to Falion and Rihanna. Because, uh, you know, when I pulled my my hardcover Chaos Bound first edition hardcover that has, you know, been opened like once before, uh, the, the original receipt was still in it as a bookmark and it was on page 45. And that was uh, like Borenson had just gone scouting and and they, and he's like, telling Mirama about his uh, Othulber's wife. This is like very, very early on. Uh, that was where I stopped reading. So I was like, there's a lot of book you. left. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of book left for, to, you know, to get back to Falion and, and Rihanna and the Emir and the wizard Sissel. And In like four or five days. So I was like, well, yeah. maybe he'll catch and, him up. Uh, maybe. And on top of that, so there were a couple of things that I have vivid memories of from that I thought were from the Wormling Horde. And uh, they didn't happen in the Wormling Horde. And this is fascinating to me. Really? Um, I had two memories of, of scenes. One was um, 
the I think I mentioned this last episode that I I remembered a scene where the Knights Eternal like attack a walled camp and kill all of Rihanna's dedicates. Oh, and then I had another memory from the end of the Wormling Horde that news arrives, you know, because like they mention a couple of times over the course of that book that that a Reaver army is marching out of the mouth of the underworld. My memory of it was that at the end of the book, they hear about it again. And this time it's a Reaver army and there's a female wizard at their head. Yes. That was not in the book, was it? <laughs> I I want so many predictions. The throwing I just mm. I And so see, I was mm. when I'm when excited. I got to the end of the book and that didn't happen, they never mentioned a female wizard at the head of the Reaver army. I was like, am I just like making this up or is this a scene from uh you know that I I'm just mixing up and it's actually this is mentioned at the beginning of Chaos Bound. But no, wow. this is definitely not mentioned. That, so yeah. I think I'm just losing my mind. Like, Maybe. Maybe. I, I or, wanted so badly for there to be mention of Avarin. You have mad like, precognition skills, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be awesome. But I've had that before yeah. in other books. I can't name the books themselves, but I've had entire series where I go back. I'm like, I swear to God, this is a scene that happened. Did I make this up? And I will. Yeah. I've gone through the, these series nine times over the past 12 years, and I cannot find that scene. I, uh, if I ever oh. remember what series that is, I will bring it up. <laughs> Like, so, well, that's the thing is like, I only read the Wormling Horde once and that's where I'm like, okay, maybe I really was just getting my memory wrong. Like typically speaking, if I've read a book more than once, I'm not going to just wholesale create scenes in my head. I absolutely (laughs) sometimes do. And if it doesn't work out that way, I I totally borrow that from my own work in the future. (laughs) Yeah. But Yeah. yeah, so, so I, I was not only hopeful that you were going to be right, but I was like, I had a sneaking suspicion that you were right. And then Sweet. you were wrong. You and played I'm it like, off dang it. You played dang it off it. because I had no idea. You're just like, yeah, um, go that. that'd be cool. I'm yeah, done with my style so, points. Do you have any others or shall we just start bitching about our characters? Uh, I do have some others. Uh, there are some weird point of view things in this uh, where uh, he switches to like present tense randomly that that leaked yeah. out at me um he does stick to the limited third person perspective uh I, I, the the further in we get the more i realize just how crazy sons of the oak is in terms of the typical style of the rune lords like mm. he just breaks all of his rules in that book it takes place over the course of like years right like it's like later. two years or yeah, five years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and even, and even without that, like five year time skip, the actual on page plot takes months for them to sail across the ocean. The previous four books combined oh, took like two weeks, you know? And remembered. since then it's been like, yeah, 19 days, you know, like they're, they're crazy fast. And then sons of the Oak is like, Nope, this is totally different. And then, Every other book other than Sons of the Oak has this limited third person perspective. And then in Sons of the Oak, he's like, I'm just going to head hop whenever I want. Yeah. It's going to be an omniscient narrator. Like I had forgotten about that. Yeah. And 
might retract my earlier statement about the Sons of the Oak being the best. <laughs> I really hate that style. Well, but, I hate that style. here's the thing, though. Like, you loved reading the book, though. I loved the end of the book. Yeah, I guess a lot of in the book was really exciting, too. But Because um, yeah, it, it was like, book. I remember talking on that episode with you, and you said you didn't even really notice it I, in I, the reading. I eventually Until well, yeah. I pointed it out. Yeah. Yeah, and like. <laughs> That's true. You remember my words better than I do, yeah. So, I don't know, it, it just, I I wish, I wish I could have had a chance to, like, sit down and talk with Dave Wolverton about some of his authorial choices in the planning and structuring of this series, because it just, it seems so unusual to me. It could be something as simple as an author just needing to breathe and just wanting to take a break from something, you know, like I kind of wait, I hope it's something like that. It was something like that. Um, I don't know. Maybe he was, I mean, I'm just absolutely speculating out of my ass right now, but he could just have been felt feeling suffocated, you know, like, yeah. Clearly he did not have an easy job writing the ninth and final book either. Like, Yes, there were extenuating life circumstances that got in the way. Like, so this book came out in, what did we say, 2009? I'll say like 09, yeah. Yeah, and and Wolverton passed away a few months ago in 2022. That is a 13-year gap. And when you look at the publication schedule of the first eight books, it was not a 13-year gap. (laughs) It was like one after another. They came out like clockwork. And, and I remember thinking like, oh, this is weird. And, and then like maybe two or three years after Chaos Bound came out, like I, I had basically told myself, I'm, I'll revisit this book when he publishes the final one. And then he made an announcement, you know, he, there was a a tragedy in his family where his son was in a really bad accident. Uh, If I remember right, his son was riding a bike and got hit by a car. And he was in a coma and, you know, it was total catastrophe, upheaval in the family. He had to basically put aside his writing and, like, make money to pay for his son's medical bills. And and that, and that then his son survived and he had to go through rehab and get back in school and kind of get his life back on track. And so it was, there were very clear and obvious reasons for why Book 9, A Tale of Tales, was taking so long he was not focusing on that he had much more important things Mm. to deal with in his life but then you know years passed his son returned to a modicum of normalcy he graduated high school he graduated college he got a job and you know all of wolverton's social media posts were like you know happy cheery like you know everything's great i'm back to working on book nine a tale of tales uh it's it's going well like i remember uh i think it was 2000 19 uh he had or maybe it was summer 2018 he had uh said he had hit the 50 percent mark on a tale of tales it was like july 2018 and and then when we covered the first four books on inking out loud i was like oh you know this may work out really well if we're covering these winter 2018 into 2019 you know maybe We'll take some time off, read the Acts of Cain, Skyward, whatever. And then A Tale of Tales will be announced by that point, And like next fall, we'll do the rest of them. And But then there was just like radio silence. 
And then we go into 2020 and it was radio silence. And then we get into 2021 and I hear some rumors. He's like, oh, I'm getting pretty close. I'm about 80%. And that was the last I heard. That was last fall, last autumn. And that he was about 80% done with, with the first draft of A Tale of Tales. So like clearly something about his writing process or something about how that story was coming together was not working the way it was earlier in his career. And, you know, yeah, it makes me wonder about this book because this book seems like such a mess in comparison to all the rest. Like, obviously, I had my criticisms of the Wormling Horde, but the Wormling Horde at least felt in theme. It felt like part of the continuity, whereas this book just seems like it's on an island. Definitely stands out. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a distinct point in the series, and... I don't know if it's really good. Yeah. I I, I mean, I I guess I'm being a little diplomatic there. I don't think it is obviously. Um, And I'm not really done complaining yet in this episode to be entirely honest, but it's, it's mostly character character uh, going on forward. You know, we have not gotten to the characters. There have been some moments of sheer lyrical, wonderful. It's just, mm, I I struggle to to find proper uh, words for it. I, I can't really articulate it at the moment, but yeah, it does feel like Wolverton is the one behind the keyboard for sure. I just, I'm just this. The decisions are are confusing me. That's all. But his his wordsmithing still stands out. He's definitely got uh, the eye for the spectacle. He's writing exciting scenes, um, particularly with that opening scene with the worlds colliding. That was I and again one percent, two percent of the way into this book, I was so on board and wondering why is it that 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 Drew fell off so quickly? I can't figure this out. This sounds like it's going to be amazing anyway, and then it kind of fell off from that point so um all right let's get into our characters though let's, let's start let's start talking yeah. about Orenson, auth bear right away of course i imagine yeah okay okay so i i started off this book thinking well i kind of forgot how much of a total dick bag Borenson was i guess like this this whole immediate line this funny no one told me of a wedding you're not gonna sleep with this tart or some such he's like he's just constantly insulting everybody that even during this chaotic scene of, of the world's merging he's thinking about the lesser bred people around him failing to take care of themselves like we start Borenson off with this very clear sign of where it feels like he needs to go as a character this intolerance curmudgeonliness however you want to put it it feels like a clear starting point at least and i can't decide if his transformation is lending itself well as a vehicle for that journey it kind of feels like a lot of the work that borns has to do to complete his arc of you know self-discovery or at least you know whatever he wants to feel as redemption is now being tied in with this finding a balance between his two selves rather than addressing the flaws in himself it's like this new sort of inner conflict just kind of feels like it's supplanting another arc of his that wasn't finished yet so i don't know yeah. how to feel about it so I, this is a, a, another issue that I had with the book is that the way Borenson acts at the very beginning, before the, the, the binding of the worlds, before mm. he merges with Oth Ulber, he is not acting like the Borenson we knew in the previous okay, six Okay, that's why, maybe that's why I was so Like, Borenson never, like, that we saw in the first four when we had Borenson points of view, he never had this, like, classist you know superior tone like a big part of his character was that he wasn't the lord he came from nothing 
you know, like his dad was was a nobody, and he he like hated his dad for the way like you know he, he was raised and 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 how like crappy his family life was, and and his dad like escaping from all of that by giving an endowment of metabolism, and he worked his butt off to become a warrior of renown and become you know a, an important bodyguard and gain stature in the world not through blue blood but through hard work and and smarts and then here he's acting completely against all of that and then it's like that would make sense if if we were seeing that after the merge and we do see a lot of that after the merge but it but was then, there beforehand yeah that's my and issue. that feels like a betrayal of Bornson's character yes and that frustrates me because like i said Bornson was one of my favorite characters in the series yeah i agree Entirely. And this whole ripping Baron walking in half, like, <laughs> I mean, that, yeah, that was brutal. Um, but yeah, um, I was like, whoa, dang. Yeah, okay. But <laughs> then, then, then we have Mirma. And she, she, speaking of characters not feeling like they did previously, I, mm-hmm. I feel this also, con- this is also, I don't know if it's attached with Morrison, but it feels like uh, Mirma is off as well. Something's missing. I don't want to say it's Borenson. I like to think that she's a strong enough character in her own right. She doesn't need another character, okay, to define her. Excuse me. But I don't know. Yeah. The, char- the writing around Mirma is excellent. I love this idea of water calling her to war. These sounds that she hears that realizes these are the sounds of battle brought by the, the waves. or so. That is awesome. But as a character, I feel like she's confined to this role of reacting to everyone and everything around her. She's pulled around by her responsibilities. And I just really want to see more of her in battle, shining like the Mirma of old. And, and, but in, in the ways that she doesn't feel like classic Mirma is the, this, the way she treats Borenson. And yeah. yes, watching him rip another man in half in front of both of their families, horrifying, justified. But I mean, she knows what he's done before, though. She's aware of his tapestry mm-hmm. of scars, especially the mental ones, from having to kill all of Rajatan's dedicates. To name an example, you know, I, just, I understand that everyone's under a lot of stress here with the merging of the world and that Bordenson, his transformation into an intimidating superhuman monster is not helping at all. But the way she turns on him and just starts calling him, like practically spitting the name Oth Wulbear at him, it just, it kind of feels like it goes directly in the face of a lot of what made their relationship feel so strong. In yeah, Sons like of the Oak. you, you go back to Wizardborn, and how much of that book was based around them learning how to communicate and learning how to understand each other, and and that built this incredibly strong yes. foundation for their marriage. And then here, it feels like that's just all ignored. Like like they they can't possibly ever talk and figure it out. And like yeah, in Sons yeah, of the and, Oak, these... and these moments where they're traveling together and he's like having PTSD nightmares in his sleep and she's there for him. She's explained like all of this just doesn't feel like the Miramo that we're seeing now, all of a sudden it feels different. It feels off. And to your point about her, you know, feeling like she's just reacting to everything. Like she's being pulled around and doesn't really have much agency. Uh, I agree completely that again, this feels like a bit of a betrayal of her character. Like the defining to me, the defining moment of who Mirama is, is the opening pages of the first book where she takes the initiative and she throws herself into the path of destiny by approaching Gaborn in the marketplace in Banisphere. 
Like she goes out of her way to struggle above her station and try to create a better life for her family. She takes the initiative. She grasps her agency. And here we see none of that. And it's like, yeah, you can, you can maybe say, oh, well, you know, she's older now. She doesn't have the fire of youth, whatever. But like, but this is still Mirama, you know, this is still Mirama Borenson, who's this heroic figure. And, and it, it just doesn't feel right having her central to this story, but not having any agency along with it, yeah, along yeah. with that role. It feels like a lot of the characters are being robbed of their potential or even their established personalities. Maybe <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. Ah, yeah. Borns and Amir. This, this is like up again, the problem with spending three books away from them as main characters and then suddenly getting yanked back to them and ignoring all the time and, and work we just put in developing a new generation of characters. It's like, yeah, if we're going to return to the old generation, we got to come up with new conflicts for them, but are those conflicts going to be satisfying? And so far they're not so um, far. I still have hope. Yeah. And like, I, it's such a bummer that like I am, I'm going in harder on this book than I've gone in on most books. Like, like this is, this is like, you know, rune of Kings. I think it says a lot though for you. Wow. Tearing hold on. into it. Oh, yeah. okay. Tearing into it. I thought you meant overall like, in quality. It's <laughs> like, no, hold on a second. Man. Like I, or, or, um, you know, my criticisms of something like Ready Player One or, or The Rage of Dragons, oh, like yeah. books that I did Rage not like. Rage of Dragons like. is going to be mine, but I forgot about Ernest Cline. Um, yeah. Like, it, I'm not usually this negative about books. And I don't want to be negative about this. The Rune Lords is, like, has always been one of my favorite series. But reading this now, it reminds me of, like, why I just stopped reading The Rune Lords back in 2009. Yeah. Yeah, and who knows if you'd be going in on this hard if this was, you know, the first book of this proverbial series that you wish it had been, perhaps. Right. You know, rather and, than being the young. And I haven't finished this book. Maybe it ends strong. Maybe I'm like, man, you know, I, I close this, uh, those final pages, and I'm like, wow, I, I really hope that, you know, uh, Wolverton's family can find somebody to finish off A Tale of Tales so we can get that conclusion. But I don't know. Hmm. I have faith. I think it will. I think we'll catch up to our main party by the end of this book, and it'll be the the stage God, will so. be set. The stage will be I set so. for the final confrontation. I, I, yeah, I, I like I said, I have a prediction for when we get there. But. Mm, good, good. Okay, Krull Maldor. Can we talk about Krull Maldor, Broski? Yeah. Who the hell this uh, guy is? This warmling leader taking orders yeah, from the emperor. Woman. Sorry, sorry. Krull that's Maldor right. That's right. Because one of the one of my favorite lines is about her being cr- uh, hunched over her prey, ripping light from Endemir in the city of the dead. The Lich Lord discovered the deepest secrets of the Rune Lords. Yo. Okay. So speaking of new threats that you can take seriously, yes, Kromaldor. She has her own designs though, and that's what I really love. They seem kind of vague, but yeah, I'm hyped for this one. I am. So again, this is. Like, she's just not as interesting as Volgnash. What it happened to Volgnash, by the way? What is going on? He got, we're... He got made mortal, and then we don't find out I know! Like, I would just, this whole... It's like, it, it feels like this, the second series, this is one of the things I think is demonstrably weaker, book five onward, is that he's, like, kind of doing this, um, 
antagonist by committee thing where he wants to give us points of view from the antagonist, you know, from the bad guys so that we, you know, we can have a little more complication to the story. We can sort of understand the motivations of the antagonist, even if we completely disagree with them, but we can understand them. And, and if done right, it makes you fear them even more. He did an excellent job at that with Rajaten in the first four books. We also got some points of view from King Anders in the first four books. And those were fascinating looks into kind mm. of the, the magic lore and, and the loci. And then here we just, instead of like two major evil points of view, we have a, just a brigade of antagonists. We get points of view from like Shadowath, from Asgaroth, from Vulgnash, from Lord Despair, from, uh, Zul'Tarak from Kroll Maldor, like we get from Warlord Madoc, you know, we, we get so many different antagonist points of view and none of them with the possible exception of Vulgnash really resonate with me in any way. Like certainly none of them even approach the level of Raja 10, who's still one of my sure. favorite antagonists ever, you know, and, and Kroll Maldor having another new, bad guy point of view pop up in the second to last book. I'm just like, I kind of am exasperated with it. And I'm like, dude, just, just give us more Vulgnash. Give us the one that you've spent two books establishing and, and really like, and, and you ended the last book with this massive this twist. huge turn like, on him. Oh, for sure. You know, yeah. and I don't know. So, I was, I was expecting Vulgnash's whole adjusting to mortality and emotion arc to be front and pseudo center in this book before I obviously I found out that it was going to be born to Namirma. Still no hint of that, of course, obviously. So it's just another disappointing point. Yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah no, Krull Maldor as well. I will say I'm taking Krull Maldor seriously as a threat, at least. And that feels good that I can consistently do that with mm-hmm. uh, new antagonists. It feels like. The main reason, of course, that I have to take Kroll Maldor seriously is the fact that they seem to be able in- to interpret and improvise rune magic on the fly. So that's a thing, and that's really intimidating. Not particularly new. We were just talking about Volgnash. We know that Volgnash is yeah. the one who invented the rune of compassion, I think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so other beings can do it too, but just the way in which it's so it seems so intuitive and easy for Kroll Maldor. And, and th- again, that last line, the Lich Lord discovered the deepest secrets of the rune lords. Where is that going? Oh, God. You know? So I'm excited to see how that pays off, hopefully, in this in this volume. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Yikarga. I don't know who, yeah, what to I think would, of Yikarga, but yeah. Go ahead. I would expect there to be some sort of showdown with Kroll Maldor in this volume, because she doesn't feel like a like an endgame enemy. You know, she's petty. She's I got her, see, like... Yeah. You know, in... in like... Not trying to. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, like in internecine, like politics and and squabbles with the emperor, and uh, she doesn't have the the gravity that that Lord Despair does or that Vulgnash does. I can see Krull Maldor trying to appeal to Borinson or Athelbear and trying to point him towards Despair. You know, and, and mm-hmm. even like allying <laughs> with Borenson, that would be just insane. I don't know, offering yeah. uh, secrets or aid in 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 his uh, supposed confrontation. I don't know. It's I, lots of potential at least there. I see it. I'm hopeful. Okay. 
So I need to bitch about Draken though. Are we done with Krull Maldor or anybody else? Yeah, sure. A bitch away. (sighs) This is where the majority of my frustration comes from with reading this book. We're eight books into this series, as you spoke so eloquently on earlier. Uh, Not only is it mathematically impossible to divide by the amount of f***s I have to give about forced teenage romance (laughs) at this point, but I cannot stand the apparent decision to make this take up so much of our page time. Yes, they're young. Yes, they're dumb. Obviously. They both think the world might as well end if they don't get into each other's pants. Okay, thanks, Farland, for making that clear again and again and again and again. You know, I'm just, I'm so tired of these lines. He wrapped his arm around her protectively and struggled gamely to resist the urge to make love. Draken broke out in a sweat as his desire for her grew. Come on, dude. I'm I'm so done with this. I get it. Okay, I get it. But it's it's such a returning note that we have to spend so much of our page time on. It is frustrating me knowing that this is happening in the final book. And there's there's a limited number of pages left in which I get to enjoy this series, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. That's... I don't know. I want to marry her mother. I want to marry her now. I, I never wanted a woman so much. I feel like I'll die without her. Okay. All right. All right. So, like, yes, we understand what horny teenagers are like. This f***ing <laughs> scene where Draken is talking with Mirama about his urges uh... and bitching endlessly about how unfair it is. And he even throws a tantrum because she can't, whip up a spell or a potion or something to ease his horniness. I'm so far checked out at that point. It's just, it's stupid. It's dumb. I don't know where this, this thread came from. I don't know why Farland thought it was important to feature or what possible way it can end up without feeling like a complete waste of time. I don't care. See, this is the problem. Like if he had, if he had just spread out, if he had started with the Bornson and Murma plotline back in Worldbinder, you don't have to deal with, you know, a Draken and Rain plotline to fill the pages of a novel. That Borns and Murma thing can be a C plot. And the rest of the book is about other interesting things, you know, like it's, it's filler. It really is filler. And it's sad that it's filler in a book this short. Yeah. It's filler. And this is this, because it's not treading any new ground. We have this, front and center character who's doing nothing for these past few chapters except complain about how horny they are i'm yeah i'm i, I can't at this point we're we're so far into the series and there's a limited number of pages left i can't like oh number of times i've rolled my eyes and wanted to skip ahead <laughs> in this audiobook because of draken specifically and rain but rain at least it seems a little more complicated as a character um mm-hmm. trying to you know juggle her family and her feelings about them along with Falion and her fear of Mirma and especially Borenson and, you know, trying to deal with her own teenage urges as, you know, any person would, but she has more going on, more dimension as a character. I feel like Rain does than Draken. Yes, she but still, definitely does. I, oh yeah. Both of them frustrate me, particularly the one 90% on Draken's side. Like Draken's got like, like first world problems vibes, you know, like, yeah. it, whereas Rain has like a, a, a more compelling character conflict. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, so. like I don't, I don't mind rain, but I do mind dragon. Hey, same here. I agree with that. Now I would much rather go back to like Talon. Yeah. 
Talon. Not not to speak anything Rihanna. of Rihanna and Fallon, <laughs> you know. But Talon, I was still mostly meh on even by no, the end. But I, see, so am I. But I'd still, still rather go rather, back to Talon than rather. deal with Dragon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I agreed one hundred percent. And um, I mean, Rain was kind of my last character that I had written down, but there, she's kind of uh, with with Fallon there. Oh, Fallon, what the hell am I saying? Pardon me, Dragon there. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, I'm done with my character notes. Any other character points in particular? My friend, um, just I just want to touch on Zul'Tarak. Zul'Tarak, uh, that we we yeah, got a point of view from him. Yeah, uh, and while again, like I, I, I'm not like enamored of the fact that we got a Zul'Tarak point of view. I did enjoy the glimpse it gave us into what things have been like after the Wormling Horde. You know that there's this like central hub of portals to other worlds and this constant flow of ridiculous monsters coming in and and we even get you know word that lord despair's armies have gone to the netherworld and are waging war on the bright ones and glories it's like man i want that book (laughs) and i'm i'm hoping that's what a tale of tales is but yeah or maybe we get there in the second half of this but yeah that that was like that was the part of this book where I was like, okay, I'm reading on because I want to know more about that. Avarin. We still have nothing about Avarin. We still yes. have nothing about the heart of the world. It's so frustrating to I'm me like, that I apparently made bruh, up that scene. Bruh, dude. Oh, come on. Think, I was so excited for that after Sons of the Oak. It's been... Two and a half books now? We're still, like, not even... We haven't even considered returning there. It's so... Ah, it's frustrating. Like, it is. you know Averid, whatever she shows up, is going to be completely badass. She's been yeah. living with the Reavers for 13 years or, or, or <sighs> That's 16 gonna be crazy. years. You know? Oh. I want to read that book. I don't want this teenage Romeo and <laughs> Pooley... No, sorry. That was going to be a terrible pun. Okay. So. Miscellaneous points. Yeah, miscellaneous points. Yeah. Um, chapter three, ending of chapter three. He's coming back, Sage suddenly exalted as an odd notion took her. The Earth King is returning. So if this is this is a thing, and it was a thing, vaguely, how is it that a child was the one who first figured it out? And what is it about the child named Sage, by the way? I'll repeat that. Yeah. Sage, that makes her special enough to interpret this. Come on. Earth wizardess, potentially. So, yeah, I, I did think that as well. Yeah. Uh, she had a couple of different things like when they when they leave the tree and she stops and picks up an acorn and she's mm. like we should take this mm. i was like yeah that's the kind of thing an, uh, an earth warden would do so when venisman slash sissel finally croaks and he his thing goes full circle and he just you know finally shrivels up and dies and Avarin needs a new apprentice uh, and Avarin needs a new apprentice sage might take up that yeah man that'd be cool That'd be cool. All right, go ahead. Another miscellaneous, because I have one more. Um, so this is my kind of uh, prediction. Oh, that's um, right. So Zul'Tarak is given this vision by the, the Chaos Oracles ah, of his death, the Chaos his Oracles. defeat at the hands of Oth-Ulber. And part of it is behind Oth-Ulber are two wizards, right? And Vaguely recall, yes. Yeah, and, uh, and, and Gaborn gives him this you know, command, you need to lead Falion to the Seals of Creation into the Underworld. Uh, I don't think it's going to be Falion. I think he's going to be leading uh, Tool Ra. Oh, yes? Uh, okay. And 
and the Vision, the two wizards, are Falion and Tuol Ra, and it's warped because they're two men with one mind. Oh? Oh. So, like, yeah, That's there's right. only going to be one wizard there, but it's, it's two words. wizards in one. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, my God. I love so that prediction. that's my prediction here. And I can make predictions now because I have no friggin' clue what's coming. <laughs> yeah. Well, now I don't. I kind of. I kind of think that like uh, that scene is going to happen in this book, but I don't think we're going to get to the underworld. Mm, okay. I think that's All a right. like Falion or Tuolra actually binding the seals and like restoring the one true world. That feels like a series climax yeah. final book thing. Yeah. 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 Agreed. Okay. Uh, my last is not a prediction or anything that cool. It's just a little point of confusion about these burrow bears. What are these things and why is everyone so intent on making them food? They sound adorable. Okay. Uh, it, it, it's one thing that I actually thought about but didn't make a note of, but I'm glad you brought this yes, up. Yes, um, yes, yes. You know, but, it's like, it's his world building where where he's like, you know, I need to make sure there are alien animals that are that feel like normal animals but they're not really so i'm gonna create new ones but he didn't want to create like an entire spectrum of animals so he just talks about rangets and burrow bears yes all the time yeah yeah yeah, yeah. borenson thinks at one point about their friendly nature the, the burrow bears again but sorry pardon yeah. me burrow bear i'm gonna try that again burrow bears and how if he ever encountered one in the wild he would let his children go up and scratch and pet it they sound so innocent like the friendly cows you know? And well, and like how um, Sage uh, like lured one with a plum yeah. and let Aaron ride it around. Yes. And like, yes, yeah. like every time we see them on screen, they're roasting on a spit. What the hell, Farland? What are you doing? Stop it. So I guess uh, yeah, he can't really. No, I'm sorry. That was I, I, I hadn't thought about <laughs> that one. But still, I'm just, oh, God. I yeah. hope whoever picks up the proverbial pen treats the burrow bears with a little more kindness because <laughs> they don't deserve it. All right. Yeah, he definitely, Wolverton has, throughout this entire series, has not been kind to the animals. No, he's not. Horses are dying left and right. Dogs are dying left and right. Dogs are getting, you know, used for endowments. Yep. You know, like there's, whew. Yeah. The fauna of this world are not in good shape. No, no. And I guess you could still say that they have it relatively easy compared to some of the stuff that we've seen the humans go through. But it's true. Ah, it's just so bleak, my friend. It's so bleak <laughs> going forward. Well, not just going forward, has been. But yeah, I hope yeah. this book ends in a, in, a, in a. I still have faith. I think it will end. I think I'm going to be walking away from this book and saying it could be a three to a four out of five if, de you know, depending on you as a reader. I hope I'll be saying that at the end of this book. I hope so, too. <laughs> I really hope so, too. Hmm. But no, I'm actually... Yeah, I think that, that takes us to the final draft, yeah. On the first half, I'm talked out so far. Yeah, our next... Dude, our next book is... Our next book, our next episode is going to be our final Rune Lords episode. Yeah. For Until a while, at Unless yeah. uh, a, a posthumous release happens. Yeah. So, oh well. So yeah, final draft. Okay. What are well, you drinking, Rob? I have been drinking part of the norm, or I should say, what has been the norm for the past few episodes. I've been drinking a delightful Lady Grey tea. Um, but besides that, I also discovered this brilliant zero calorie sparkling ice water. This is black raspberry flavored. It's very nice. A little expensive, but you know the whole zero calories thing is nice. I've still been um, 
Actually, I was going to say drinking responsibly, not drinking even more responsibly. So yeah, yeah, that's just just tea and sparkling water with flavored in it, <laughs> with flavored with uh, black raspberry flavor in it. Mm, so nice, nice. How about you, my friend? Uh, well, like you, I have uh, still been sober, uh, and I am drinking some tonic water as usual. Uh, but this time I'm. I did a little bit of a cocktail. Um, I mixed my standard tonic water with some blood orange Italian soda. And this is very tasty. So that was, that was good. But because this is the final draft and I have, uh, you know, expectations to meet. (laughs) You said a a, a bottle of beer here that I am not going to drink. Uh, although I will say, uh, when I, you know, decide to get back to drinking. I'm, this is probably going to be one of the first bottles that I open, you know, on a, you know, on a Friday night sometime, something like that, because, and it's good because this is a beer that can, you can sit it down and age. You know, we, we've had this sitting in our temperature controlled cooler. Uh, This is from Cerebral Brewing Company in Denver, Colorado. Nice. nice. Yep. Another Barrel-aged Imperial Stout. Uh, this is a double barrel-aged Imperial Stout aged for 13 months in Elijah Craig whiskey barrels. Wow. And then aged an additional 11 months in XO Cognac barrels. Wow. And I am a huge fan of Cognac barrel-aged stouts, so that's why I'm very excited to get around to drinking this at some point. Um, uh, yeah, like I'm, I'm really, really excited for this one. It's 16.7% ABV. Oh so like God. I said, this is the kind of like, you know, you're having a, a, a Friday night in, you know, maybe maybe it's the winter and you got the fireplace on, like that kind of a thing. You oh my goodness. cozy up under a blanket with the TV on and... Uh, or and use it to light your fire. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Um, uh, but this this one is for uh, Zulterak's point of view chapter. It is... Oh. This is the 2022 Exo Cognac Double Barrel Here Be Monsters. Here Be Monsters. I love it. I yeah. love it. Sweet. Oh, yeah. boy. Okay. All right. The so, end of part one. Indeed. That brings us to the end of this episode, uh, which has been... Dang it. Let me look at the spreadsheet here. Uh, uh, yeah, episode 170 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Uh as Rob said, next up, we'll be finishing off Chaos Bound, finishing off the currently published Rune Lords books. Uh, I am, I am excited. I'm, I'm a little trepidatious. Trepidatious, but I am excited to get to apprehensive. it. Apprehensive. Um, I'm more apprehensive about what's next Ambivalent. after that because because the most ambitious thing we'll ever do, probably the Book of the New Sun, is up after that. Yeah. Um, but uh, as always, if you want to support Inking Out Loud, you can find us on Patreon. And, you know, that goes a long way. That support there is what allows us to continue this thing, pays for our website hosting and, you know, our, uh, our software editing and recording software. And most importantly, in my mind, uh, it allows us to pay the wonderful Fel Candy for her artwork. Bingo. Uh, Agreed. Yeah. We're thrilled to be able to do that, and it's thanks to your generosity that we can afford it. As always, 
I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Right here. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.